0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 16th, 2023. We've been doing a lot of shows on the planet, and apparently it's broken, at least according to one of my guests. Julian Cribb, an Australian uh, writer on the environment, he has a new book out called How to Fix a Broken Planet. It's as if it's shattered into lots of different pieces, and our job now is to put it back together. It's a theme that's come up lots of times on the show. The ocean is broken, too, according to another of our guests, Farah Obadullah. And uh, if we're to break it, maybe there's the technology, or if it's broken, maybe there's the technology to put it back together. Mark Jacobson, a professor at Stanford University, came on the show earlier this week talking about how um, we do indeed now have the technology to put our planet back together. It seems as if there's a the ideal of the end point, that we can fix everything. Uh, even science fiction writers have got into the act. Anna Lee Newitz was on the show a few weeks ago, a San Francisco-based science fiction writer, new book out, Terraformers, imagining a world where we have the technology to quite literally put together planets through this technology. But maybe we're all mistaken. Um My guest today on the show, uh, Thomas Halliday, is uh, one of the world's leading young uh, Palae biologists, if that's the right description, uh, the right pronunciation of the world. And he has a prize-winning new book out, Otherlands, Journeys in Earth's Extinct Ecosystems. He's joining me from one of those extinct ecosystems, Enfield, North London. Thomas, welcome. I'm joking, of course, about Enfield. (laughs) It's anything but extinct. Um, This idea, Thomas, of the planet being broken, is that correct or is it a a wrong metaphor or a a wrong way of thinking about it? (sighs) Well,
1: I mean, so I, I'm not entirely sure what your previous guess and how they've defined broken. Broken seems to me to be pretty final. Certainly environments are, are highly fragmented, polluted. Atmosphere is um, has been changed to a point where we know that it's going to have far-reaching consequences long into the future, but um, I, I would... Uh, I, I would sort of caution against the the despair that might come about from a, an idea of the finality of the word broken. So yes, damaged, and damage continues to accrue for as long as we continue along the path that we have been going on for the past uh, 150 years or so, um, but, but certainly not uh, irredeemably unfixable.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to land you in the middle of the debate about global warming and all that sort of thing. I mean, it, it would be profoundly unfair of me you're not involved in that you're a you're a you're a historian of uh or other lands at least is it is a history or a historical journey through earth's extinct worlds it's an incredibly original idea how did you come up with it
1: well, one of the things we do as as paleobiologists, uh, sort of routinely in our day to day job, is to try and and work out how life used to exist. Right? It's uh, essentially the the field of biology, just looking at organisms in deep time, those that are no longer with us. And it's all very well to just sort of, you know, look at taxonomy and talk about the names of extinct creatures and little bits of trivial facts about them. But uh, what I wanted to do is to try and Bring a wider audience to that idea that we're really trying to reconstruct how organisms lived, and no organism lives alone, right? You can visit a museum and see a skeleton that's bolted together with iron, right? And um, but that's not how an organism lives. An organism is part of an ecosystem with its own climate, with its own, you know, uh, the chemistry of the water and the soil and the air, uh, with all of the other creatures, the other flora and fauna that that surround it, that makes up a sort of a vibrant whole. And there are various places in um, the fossil record where we have extremely good, coherent, and um, quite high-resolution ideas of what and what certain ecosystems would have been like. And so, rather than being, you know, a history of Earth, what Otherlands is is sixteen snapshots of uh, of uh, ecosystems that have existed in uh, the past 550 million years, treated in a way that you could, you know, as if you could imagine that you're there or that there's some sort of disembodied camera. You're watching a nature documentary. I don't know. It's meant to be an immersive uh, look holistically into into the way that life used to be on this planet.
0: So where do you begin? How far back?
1: The um, well, well, the first chapter um, is is set only twenty thousand years ago, which in a paleobiologist's time frame is a relative blink of an eye, but. Uh, as you go through the book, each chapter gets progressively further and further back in time until we get to um, 550 million years ago, It is more or less at the time when you see the first complex ecosystems that, you know, as people, we would be able to potentially experience. Before then, you get into a time when life is essentially just microbial. And so it's slightly less immersive and experiential, slightly less interesting for you know, and human eyes to
0: see. We, we humans show up in all this uh, now.
1: Uh, well the genus homo uh, has been around for about 2 million years and uh, homo sapiens has been around for about 200,000 years so we're, we're very sort of late comers on the scene most of the um, Content of the book takes place before humans existed as a whole, and even that chapter and um, the very first one, set in the north slope of Alaska, 20,000 years ago, that is before there were populations of humans in that area. Perhaps before there were populations of humans in North America, although there are some records that have been coming out recently which suggest that maybe humans have uh, arrived in that continent a bit earlier than we thought. But certainly, in the in the environment, the ecosystem that I'm describing, it's one where human a human presence is still absent
0: so at at best we are bit players uh footnotes in in other lands what 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 are the the creatures that star in this or do they depend on which chapter
1: oh yeah that will absolutely depend on the chapter um the the forms of organisms that have existed over earth's history is sort of wonderful and, and diverse i think some of the Uh, I mean, some of the organisms that um, people seem to have latched onto, in particular, there's a chapter set in the Eocene of Antarctica, um, which 40 million years ago was a temperate rainforest ecosystem. And on the fringes of these, the Antarctic coast, the West Antarctic Peninsula, which is that long, thin bit that today stretches out towards South America, um, there were giant penguins that were the size of, um, or the height, rather, of of humans. Um, And these... uh, and, and in fact, this week, uh, only this week, there's been um, a discovery of a, of another giant penguin in New Zealand that is yeah, uh, supposedly that. even bigger. So, so you know, th- these are finds that keep cropping up. So, I think I just find the idea of um, you know these organisms, which have you know today in Antarctica the only permanent animal inhabitants of that continent, are emperor penguins. Right? Every other uh, organism that goes on land during the Antarctic summer leaves for the winter, but the emperor penguins hold on. And there have been penguins living on that continent for uh, more than 40 million years, you know, year in, year out, uh, getting through that polar winter. Um, and I just think that, that that's a sort of what well, remarkable but, uh, Originally,
0: when you began then in the narrative, the pole, the, the South Pole wasn't cold. so mu- the, the rest of the world must have been enormously hot.
1: Well one of the things that um happens when so the, the world as a whole was warmer certainly 40 million years ago this is before there were major ice sheets over Antarctica but in a warmer world in a greenhouse world uh the temperatures are a lot more even across uh the um, world than they are today. So although the equator would have been warmer than today, it would have been slightly warmer. Whereas the poles are substantially warmer. And you know, even saying that there are rainforests at the poles, these are temperate rainforests. So it's warm in the sense that Western Scotland is warm. It's warm in the sense that British Columbia in Canada is warm. You know, it's it, it's not a fr- continually frozen landscape, and it's st- uh, but you know, it still has that polar winter, and it is still towards the poles. So it's um you know a rainforest essentially is just uh, a, a um uh, well it's a forested landscape where there is substantial rain and where plants are able to grow on other plants so you'll see you know ferns and mosses and uh you know in a tropical rainforest you might have um all kinds of like picture plants and vines and whatever, all growing on top of other plants, these epiphytic plants. That's really the defining feature of a rainforest. And it's the native ecosystem for large parts of, of um, you know, or, well, of, 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 of Britain and Ireland, for example, or, or of Canada, and parts of Chile, parts of New Zealand. And historically, uh, before uh, the Earth most recently flipped into its current ice house state, uh, large parts of Antarctica as well.
0: I thought we were in global warming, Thomas. So is that itself, in terms of your other lands, this journey through the Earth's extinct world, should we even be using a term like global warming?
1: Yes, yeah, so the world is warming. Uh, that's uh, that <laughs> The world is warming as a result of carbon emissions. Um, there are natural... Uh, flips and changes that happen over Earth. So the Earth has been considerably warmer than it is today, but that does not mean that, no, it's not the absolute temperature that matters, right? Um, It's the rate of change that you get, that life can exist in all kinds of climates. Um, but the problem comes when you upend what uh, the the climates in which organisms have evolved, and right now we are going through the fastest period of um, of carbon dioxide emission um, in Earth's history, right and. Uh, which is um, causing warming at a, uh, at a practically unprecedented rate. I mean, simi- the only analogies that you can draw from the fossil record are things like the end Permian mass extinction, which happened 250 million years ago and is a mass extinction that was driven by methane emissions from um, a volcanic lava field the size of Australia in what is now Siberia. Um, and that caused 95 percent of life to become wiped out. Right. Um, so, my when I say that the absolute temperature doesn't matter, I mean, you can take an analogy of you know a car driving along a freeway, right? If the you can say, well, it you know, it doesn't matter if I drive flat out into that wall, this car has been stationary before. Now, it's the rate of change that kills you,
0: right? That's <laughs> yeah, the important well thing. taken. So, uh, y- y- you speak as if. Everything about other lands is known. Aren't there still a a, a number of scientific controversies and uncertainty about, for example, the impact of asteroids hitting the Earth and the death of the dinosaurs? What are the questions still about other lands in in your journey through the Earth's extinct worlds? What didn't you know? Or or, uh, as a paleobiologist, you pretty confident from the fossil record that you know everything?
1: We certainly don't know everything. Um, paleobiology is a is, is a science that is continually updating itself and uh, finding new data just like any other field. Um, I mean, even with new specimens, right, there's a new species of dinosaur on average um, described once a week. There are two species of fossil mammals described on average once a week, and that's only you know dinosaurs and mammals, which are a small part of life on Earth. Um, the, uh, there are also, you know, huge biases in, in what can be preserved. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, for a fossil to be preserved, it needs to be buried in sediment. And so that means that it needs to be, it needs, the corpse needs to rest somewhere where there is mud or sand or silt settling down, which means it t- tends to be in lakes and shallow seas and river estuaries, never really in mountains, right? Mountains are erosional. Um, places. They're places where the rock is being worn away by water and wind, um, and so, you know, we have huge gaps in in, in our knowledge of, of what existed in the past. When I'm reconstructing these um, ecosystems, it is uh, on the basis of, you know, what we know about these places, and we can get surprising details about um, about some places, uh, like, for example, in the Rhiney Chert, which is an ecosystem in the north of uh, Scotland, which preserves one of the very first terrestrial ecosystems when plants and fungi and animals are coming onto land um, and sort of turning it into a place which is, uh, you know, as diverse as the oceans were, um, that's where we get you know interactions between fungi and plants, where you can see the hyphae of individual fungi going through these little stomata, the holes that plants essentially breathe through. Um, and sort of going in and parasitizing them, um, or even working with them. And you get these first interactions that help to develop, for example, root systems, which then are so fundamental to transforming life on Earth. Right? So you can get extraordinary details in particular places, but there's a huge amount um, in the places that we don't have a record for that is missing. Uh, so, you know, there's always a lot more to discover.
0: Thomas, you go around the world, at least... Um in a metaphorical sense from Australia China Niger Bolivia Montana Kyrgyzstan Italy to what extent is this a global story or in terms of other lands is each world that you investigate each uh, each ecosystem or extinct ecosystem is it independent of the other um in other words is there a is there a universal narrative here? There,
1: in the sense that, I mean, that uh, well, so so first of all, it is absolutely a global story. But I don't mean by that that each ecosystem is sort of representative of the entire Earth at that time. I know, every mm. just just as with today, right? Every. Every slice through time that you could choose to take um, through Earth's history would have a a series of environments um, all over the world, um, which are partly dependent on what the general climate of the Earth is at that time, and and on on what organisms uh, existed. Um, so, uh, and, and I don't really feel like i 'm running a single narrative through all of the chapters. Each chapter is um, illustrating some sort of ecological point some 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 lesson about um, how life functions and has always functioned and There are patterns that emerge always you know the, the way that energy flows through ecosystems tends to be the same through history when we see this back to the food webs that we can reconstruct from Cambrian ecosystems more than half a billion years ago. They work in a very similar way to the food webs that exist today. And what this really leads us to is a recognition that there's nothing intrinsically special about the time that we exist in, as far as the rules of life go. What's special about the time for us is the fact that we are in it right now and that we can experience it, but also that we can understand how it might change in the future. Right. And and the one lesson that you might take from all of these sixteen sites. The one thing that they really share, the only thing that they all share, is that they're gone, right? You have this. Um, although life you itself mean they're, is
0: very famous... Pardon? They're, you, they're done. They're extinct. In other words.
1: Yeah. They are. Uh, yeah. They are gone. There's. They are no longer with us. Well, although life itself persists and survives mass extinctions, becomes as diverse as ever it was um, after, afterwards, although it takes up to you know, a million or two million years, um, there's a fragility of the particular ways of life. When life comes back from a mass extinction, um, it is always different. It always comes back in a slightly different way, although the same general rules can be observed. Um, you know, the, the, I, I say in the book, uh, something like, you know, the, the cast is different, but the play is the same. And what that means for us when we're looking at a time when we are stressing all of these ecosystems, we are snapping all of the threads that connect the individual members of each ecosystem, um, we should not expect the earth to simply sort of shrug and let us carry on with it. If you know, there's, we are as, um, as as prone to extinction as as life at any other time and therefore should really work to avoid that, right? We don't want to consign the world that we evolved in and that all of the other species around us that have evolved in, into that sort of endless caste list of past Earths.
0: But, I mean, in, in your narrative from Gargano in Italy, the Seymour Island of Australia, Xian formation in China, Marathi formation in Niger, I mean, you go on and on. I, I mean, in the end, Everything dies, right? I mean, we're not going to last forever. Is that one of the the lessons or or, or, or warnings, perhaps, in your book? Um,
1: that sounds um, phrased like that. It seems really nihilistic and pointless, um, and I, I wouldn't, I don't recognize that at all. Um, I, I think that, yeah, sure. Um, what what, well, what I think the, the lesson is, is that there's a fragility there, right? So, yeah, eventually all things d- will go extinct in the same way that you will die, I will die. And at some point, the last person who knows your name will die. That doesn't mean that there's no point in doing anything during your life. And um, it also, you know, it, it, means, it doesn't mean that there's no worth to the ecosystems that are around us today. You know, even if we are being selfishly human about it, these... Um, you know, the ecosystems that exist today support us in, in many ways. We are integrated into, into, into life around us. And, and so, you know, the idea that we should sort of think, oh, well, it doesn't matter if um, we devastate the earth now because, it's, you know, life will return in a different way. That's, that's I think, that that's the perspective of a disinterested observer that we cannot be because we are part of that system.
0: Yeah, and I think that's very well said. I, I apologise for my rather, as you put it, nihilistic, pointless remark. Um, there are people, of course, who, who's, who who have built p- political parties on on this nihilism and pointlessness. What would you say to them? Um, I, I or at least talking. political ideologies of saying, well, we should do nothing, things will work itself out, we'll have technology that will fix this stuff, or we'll go to other planets. Uh, well, know, I mean, saying Mali, people, that That's a rather fashionable idea at the moment.
1: I think, I mean, the, the idea of going to other planets is is, is utterly ridiculous, I think, because we don't have the technology for that. And also we need to, you know, if you have that technology, then use it to sort the planet that you're on first. Um, but uh, the, I think... Saying that we have technology to fix the problems we have, that in itself isn't realistic and doing nothing. That is that is actually acting, that is doing something. I mean, sitting back yeah, and hoping
0: I, I that the technology to, will, uh, I, I didn't mean to say that those people who believe we should use technology to fix this are pointless or nihilistic.
1: No, um, but I mean there are there's there's certainly a, a sort of a viewpoint of um uh, this is too big for us to change. Therefore, we should just try and adapt. And I think that's really a dangerous viewpoint because it just leads to complete inaction, and um, you don't actually solve the problem. It's also um, a, a negative viewpoint to just say, "Well, this is um, uh, everything's going to be fine," right? That that's also clearly patently untrue. Um, I think so. What, what's quite relevant here is um, a. Uh, a group, as it was called by the Danish uh, poet and 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 uh, uh, rebel Pete Hein, um, who said, um, eliminate the optimist um, who takes the simple view that human values will persist no matter what they do. Um, Eradicate the pessimist whose ineffectual cry is that the goal's already missed, however hard we try. And that poem is called Two Passivists. And it was written in the context of um, trying to avoid a rise in fascism in in the 1930s and 40s. Um, But it applies equally, I think, to this, the the climate crisis. If you sit back and say everything's going to be fine, or if you um, say, that oh it doesn't matter there's there's nothing we can do or we'll just make the best make make a fist of it and and keep going that's that's th- those are both negative approaches that do absolutely nothing and we should strive to be hopeful and be activists you know hope is an axe as Rebecca Solnit said you know it, it it will it it is there to break down the door but you have to swing it right um it yeah there will, we must continue sort of on into the future and the thing is we have like political models that have worked in the past the montreal protocol which um helped to stop the um a uh, hole in the ozone layer from growing, that was signed in 1985 at the height of the Cold War with the USA and the USSR and Iran and all sorts of countries that were other, you know, at each other's throats, um, agreed to work together and provide a fund where which, which wealthy countries would pay less wealthy countries to help wean them off the damaging chemicals to protect a common good. And there's no reason that that couldn't work for um, for carbon fuels as well, especially given that we, you know, uh, right now, um, solar power, for example, and wind power is cheaper and more reliable, less volatile than, than than fossil fuels. But the fossil fuel lobby has a very has the ear of many a politician, and um, has a lot of money to throw behind their campaigns. So ultimately, uh, in if we have to tackle that, we do have to tackle those uh, those uh, sets of interest groups that have a vested interest in the status quo, which is. Um, leading us on a path to destruction
0: yeah and you're very much in that sense you're very much in mark jacobson's camp he said exactly the same thing to me earlier this week um you're a hardcore scientist uh thomas you you know your stuff inside out you won all sorts of prizes uh, as a as an undergraduate you have an honorary position at birmingham university and yet this book is uh for a general readership it Uh, It was one of the New Yorker's best books of 2022. The paperback's just coming out. It won the shortlisted for Waterstones Book of the Year, longlisted for the 2022 Bailey Gifford Prize. We've had a number of other, which is the top nonfiction book prize of the year in the UK. How did you manage? You're not um, an experienced writer. How did you manage to translate your hard core scientific knowledge into this readable book about extinct ecosystems?
1: Well, I think I do. uh, um, It's certainly true that most sort of popular science books take the approach of, you know, in in 1982, so-and-so did this study and they found such and such a result. And um, while that's, you know, to someone like me, I I love reading lots of books like that. But when you're trying to... um, get a sense of a place, I, I felt that that was um, that kind of distracted from what I was trying to do and try to make the past feel alive and, and recognize that the earth has existed in all kinds of um, in environmental forms uh, of which we currently inhabit, one that's just as wonderful as, as those that are in the past um, and so in order to do that I, I wanted to make it as immersive as possible remove directly those kind of references and people from the text move them into you know so there are references at the back of the book which you can check out if you're interested in how the uh how the facts, or the the, um, or at least you know scientific facts, in the sense of they the best uh, argument that we have, the best answer that we have, um, came into the narrative, um, but from in the actual chapters themselves, it should feel more like nature writing and travel writing, and that's the kind of um, uh, those are also books that I enjoy reading. I'm a fan of people like Rob Robert, uh, Robert McFarlane and so on, um, who write very convincingly about you know our relationship with the world today and i just wanted to take that style that i enjoyed so much and translate it into uh, into the past and so so that um a the non scientific reader sort of non trained reader as it were um could kind of experience the past as we within the subject sort of do and, and are able to because we have that familiarity with the subject and the literature and our understanding of how to sort of read the rock record
0: you're also uh, at least according to your Twitter handle, um, an international croquet player. I, is, yeah. is, is this the kind of thing that a lot of paleo biologists do croquet?
1: <laughs> I'm yet to meet another paleo biologist that does it. No, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, um, hobby. It's a great sport. And I was lucky enough to, uh, play for uh, Scotland at the end of um, 2021 and fingers crossed that I'm selected again this year. Um, Still waiting for that. So, Alan, if you're listening, pick me. Um, But um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the. It's it's quite a sort of thinky sport. A lot of people who play are scientists or 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 sort of computing types or engineers and so on, because uh, you um, well, at least in one of the codes, the traditional code, you build breaks rather like in snooker. So you've got to think several turns ahead, and it can get quite sort of mathematical. So it's a real, um, yeah, a great way of being outside in the sun and having your yeah, logical faculties challenged.
0: <laughs> and I'm guessing it also requires a great deal of patience, just as your work as a as a paleobiologist requires patience. You've got to you've got to dig. You've got to look at the fossils. You nothing is obvious. Everything takes time, like the world itself. Perhaps has has the book and the study. Has it changed your conception of time? After all, you know, five hundred million years is a long time, as you suggested. None of us, even Ray Kurzweil, no one's going to live five hundred million years.
1: <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I think I think it is. Uh, it does it does change your perspective uh, a little bit in, in the subject. I think in writing the book, I'm not sure that it changed my perspective too much, just because I was already within the subject, and you do almost become immune to uh, that, you know, those spans of time being as ridiculous as they are. But I I, I did want to kind of illustrate within the book how long ago um, this oldest chapter, 550 million years ago is. You know, it's at a time before most of the stars that exist in our sky were born. It's a time when we had, that the earth in, in the intervening time has orbited the center of the galaxy twice. The friction has subsequently slowed the Earth's rotation down so that back then the day was 22 hours and the moon has, is slowly drifting away. Uh, from earth and so back then it was much closer and much brighter than it is today you know all of these things that we think of as you know poetic constants right the stars in the sky are the are, are always the literary embodiment of it stays the same and yet when you when you go into um, deep time you realize that the stars of orion's belt are all younger than the oldest shark you know <laughs> it's uh, paleobiology is dealing with time spans, which are, I think, beyond our comprehension, even when you're within the subject. And so you have to begin to use uh, your own little sort of analogies and to really properly understand it. I mean, a a billion, a million seconds is about 10 days, right? But a billion seconds is um, over 30 years, right? Um, The we sort of think, oh, a million, a billion. Those are big numbers, and they are both big numbers, but they are completely different big
0: numbers. How, how, how long is a trillion seconds?
1: Oh, God, a trillion seconds. I mean, you're then going back. I mean, I, I would say that you're go, you're going back beyond the beginning of writing and beyond the beginning of human civilization at that point.
0: Right, final question, Thomas. Um, we're doing this. It's late for you in Enfield, North London, because you want to put your kids to bed, so... You're clearly a good parent. Uh, congratulations on that. We've done some shows about the whole idea of being an ancestor and how to be a responsible ancestor. Uh, you know the, the 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 debate about the environment rages on and on, and, and your book is a contributor. What do you think it contributes in terms of? that whole question of of what it means for us to be responsible ancestors to generations of our children and our children's children and the children of our children's children?
1: Well, I think um, paleobiology has always been central to our understanding of how climate systems work, right? So the the very first uh, person to recognise that carbon dioxide was a greenhouse gas was a woman called Eunice Foote, who in uh, 1856 did an experiment which. Um, which, and which showed carbon dioxide to be a greenhouse gas. But what she was interested in was um, how there could have been coal forming swamps in the past in, in, current, in places where currently a swamp would not form. Um, so from paleobiology, what we have is that understanding of what can happen in the future. We, it's where we get the, the, the basis for our models, for knowing what happens and how ecosystems respond and realizing that um, ultimately, 20,000 years ago, the biggest ecosystem on Earth was was the Mammoth Steppe, and it stretched from Spain all the way through Russia, all the way to Alaska and into Canada. It's a massive grassland. It no longer exists except in tiny patches in Mongolia. Um, It disappeared over the course of um, only a couple of thousand years. The biggest ecosystem of the world disappeared, snap of the fingers in geological sense. And we should not so we, we should be very careful not to stress the environments that support us um, right now. And being a good ancestor essentially means conserving that the um, the way in which the Earth currently is for as long as it is sort of sensible to do so. Let geological time take care of climate change, and don't let humans force it. Um, eventually, things will change, but by that point, maybe we will too. Um, But if we let it happen over the scale of a century, over the scale of a lifespan, uh, then the only thing that can happen is the organisms failing to adapt, failing to be able to move and uh, uh, devastation results. And it, it is avoidable devastation at this point. It is avoidable.